0: All right y'all so so our passage today is in First Timothy, and we have been moving through First Timothy, you know systematically as best that we can, because First Timothy shows us tells us reveals to us really what a healthy church should look like it 's about more than just a healthy church, but we definitely glean the healthy church this is paul 's letter to Timothy, so I can read it personally as a pastor and say okay here 's the the pastoral charge. In fact, it's called a pastoral epistle, a pastoral letter. So it's Paul, uh, an older apostle, writing to young Timothy, who is in his um, mid to late 30s, maybe early. He's in his 30s, and he's telling him, hey, as a pastor, here's what you've been called to, and here's what you need to hold to. And then we've been able to, like, piece together, okay, God really does care about his church. He does clearly tell us what church should look like, and and then there's a lot of grace and freedom in that. So I sometimes get the question because people who really know me, they, they know that, that we're a smaller congregation. They're like, "What? what do you, you like the smaller congregation, don't you? It's like, oh, I really do. So you probably don't like such and such church. And I'm like, I got nothing against them. That's okay. As long as they're preaching the gospel and holding true to the word and doing all that God's called them to do, I've got no problem with that. They are great pastors who have been holding to the word systematically teaching, and they are authentically modeling genuine Christianity. I have no problem with that. It's whenever we begin to manufacture um, what church should look like, and we're marketing in a way so that we can draw in the crowds, and we begin to let go of what call, of what God has called essential. And so, what I like about First Timothy is he just it strips it all down to, I think here's what we've been called to do. With that said. We've talked through false teaching. We've talked through the conduct and how we should be in church um, as far as our prayer and praying for leaders. We've talked about elders and deacons. All of these are in 1 Timothy. And then chapter 5 shifts, and really it, it looks at the congregation. When you and I gather, this is called the congregation, and how we gather absolutely does matter. The body life of a church matters. Okay, so with that said, we're going to read 1 Timothy. We're going to read verses 1 through 16, and then we're going to jump to 6, 1 through 2, and I'm, I'm going to guide you through there. The reason we're leaving out that middle section is that's what Andy preached last week, um, and it still relates to body life, but he preached that particular passage. So we're going to pick up on all the other aspects of body life. Here we go. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9 says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry Bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now go to chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and, and the teaching may not be reviled. Those that have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. All right, so that's a, that's a And it seems like, well, he's talking about this, he's talking about this, he's talking about this, he's talking about this. And it, he is because he's talking to all the believers as they're gathering. Like, that's what holds this whole thing together. And so we're going to approach it in this way. We're going to move through this passage, not necessarily verse by verse, like word by word as we, we and, and, you know, this particular nuance in this, this phrasing as we typically do. We're going to look kind of collectively at what does he tell us about generate one generation to the other? What does he tell us about widows? What does he tell us about elders? And what does he tell us about um, um, bondservants, slaves, and masters? And then we're going to kind of step back and go, okay, but this is not a teaching in and of itself. We're just going to kind of start in Romans. Hey, whenever we come together, Romans says that this is what we should be doing. This is what Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, and, and, and I'm not going to lie, I'm about to set a timer so that I can be mindful. And then once we hit a certain point, I'm just going to say, I'll send you my notes in case you want all the other passages. But I just want you to see and hear me on this. God cares how we gather. He cares how you and I interact with one another. We can't come in and just simply gather and go with no connection to anyone else. We cannot come and just consume and not pour into others. It comes down to this. We love God. We love one another. But watch this. We do love God by loving His people. And that's going to be kind of what pulls it all together. And I hope that that is what can be said of Cross Life. I hope it's what can be said of me. I hope it's what can be said of any church that preaches the gospel throughout this entire city. There is a reason that that verse is on the wall. I had it put there that behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It was part of our opening verse today. But it's on that wall because about three to four years ago, I asked for it to be placed up there so that it reminds all of our students, all of our faculty and staff, everyone who comes into this room, that to be a Christian means that we're called to unity in the faith. And we're going to see that over and over again. And I'm going to tell you, that is going to lead to it being comfortable in moments and welcoming and incredibly uncomfortable at moments. Because this means that our lives intersect, and that's how it was meant to be, because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to be in one another's lives. So you're going to hear those verses later. That's kind of our framework. But we love God by loving His people. And if we're not mindful and intentional, I'm kind of front-loading here a little bit because we're going to have a lot of verses at the end. If we're not mindful and intentional, what can happen in the church is not widespread care, but widespread neglect. Because somebody else will call, somebody else will do, somebody else will connect, somebody else will catch. And in the end, nobody's doing anything because we're not caring, we're neglecting. You've got to be very, very careful. We cannot let others do what we've all been called to do. So what does this particular passage, we're going to start there, what does this particular passage tell us about congregational life and what it should look like? And I'm, I'm not joking, I, I know me, and you know me. And so there goes my timer right there. If I say I'm gonna keep it short, like, we just know it's not. So I'm gonna be mindful of that timer right there. Okay, one generation to the next. This is what it tells us. Look, do not, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, and older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Here's the principle that you and I really need to follow. Like, it, it all boils down to this. That when we come together, you and I are family. We are co-heirs with Christ. Any believer that I encounter is my brother in Christ. Any sister that, or any woman that I meet who believes in Jesus Christ, regardless of age, is my sister in Christ. We are family. And I get it. With family, I'm one of seven kids. You know how to, to love one another, and you know how to drive each other crazy. But you know what? You're still family. But the principle is this, we're family. An older man as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, do it all in purity. Y'all, there can be no generational snobbery or division in a church. It's not meant to be, and yet if you walk into a church uh, in modern times, and I'm not like singling anyone out, so if you're like, oh, he's talking about, no, I'm talking about if you walk into a church Chaz and I have experienced this. We walk in, they see our kids, they're like, oh, 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 oh. We'll show you where the sanctuary is first. Let us show you our children's department. I have no problem with children's departments. I think that they can be absolutely incredible. Yeah, and our youth, they meet right over here. Look at that center. And y'all, you look like you're in about the 30s and you've got kids, so we're going to be sending you to this class right over here. And then our, our older... Um, saints who have deeper faith because they've lived longer and their hair looks a little bit different than the years, they're going to meet over here. And so, what has happened essentially is we walk into a church and it becomes so segregated based on our generations. And they're just, you have this group over here, and this group over here, and this group over here, and this group over here, and, over here. and we are just so divided. There should be no generational snobbery, is what I put it. Okay. I'm okay with serving the kids where they need. That's why we offer children's. I would love it. I am praying, Lord, bring somebody up within Cross Life who has a heart for youth, because we have kids um, who are growing into youth who need the word and that intentional attention. And like I'm, pray- like, I'm not against those things, but they cannot be separated from the church. That's why our kids are in here with us singing. That's why whenever we gather, we want to all be together. So y'all good with me? There can be no generational breakdown. It seems like the generations come together and they enrich one another. We see this in Titus 2. That's wonderful. I need to learn from men who are further along in the faith. I need to hear from women who are further along in their faith and have much more wisdom in life. I am telling you, as someone who studies the Word, I need that in my life because I do do not know what faith 40 years from now looks like, but there are some who do. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. I'm just going to tell you, this is why I do not rebuke older men. I just don't. I encourage them as much as I can. This this means that I do have to hold my tongue and bite my cheek. And sometimes I just inwardly groan because I am not to rebuke them. Now, do I as a pastor, you might be thinking, but as a pastor, like, you've got to speak into that, right? Uh, Yes and no. If it's heresy, I'll speak into it. If it's just bad doctrine, I'll speak into it. But it's usually not that. It usually comes down to, despite age, it usually comes down to not heresy, but immaturity, insecurity, misunderstanding. But if I as a pastor or as an elder of the church have presented the word, and loved this person and provided as much teaching and, and welcoming and leadership as I possibly can. I'm not going to rebuke him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to encourage him. And then I turn it over to the Lord. I just say, okay, Lord, I've, I've done what I can. I don't know what to do, but, but this is yours. So I'm going to sum all that up in this. A healthy congregation honors one another regardless of age. Oh, they're just kids who love the Lord. Right? I don't care how old they are. If they love the Lord, it's a brother and sister in Christ. That amazes me that sitting here on the front row, I have my two boys who, regardless of age, those are brothers in Christ. I will be with them for all of eternity. That's amazing. Number two, widows. It talks about widows. This is incredibly important. Y'all, God cares about those who have the least and who have nothing. We see it from the Old Testament all the way through, but James, is, um, James 1, 27 is the verse that we all probably know really well. Um, it says this. It's very sobering. Religion, you know what you and I hold to, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We're really good at keeping ourselves unstained from the world as a priority. How are we doing about caring for the widows and orphans? And I can't speak for you. I can say that this is something that Chas and I struggle with. We're like, we're doing this and this and this and this and this, and, and how do we help those kids who are in the foster care system if we're not called to foster ourselves, but how do we help provide that support? We wrestle with that. But you know what? Maybe in our wrestling we're also being unfaithful because we're not following through either. I'm just like bringing you into my household again. This is something... That it is easy for us to neglect, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. But I, you gotta, I'm not, this is where I'm not gonna do the total verse by verse breakdown. I'm gonna break it down in, in some big key points. Paul takes care to define the widows that the church should care for and should not care for. Not like we don't care about them, but we don't enlist them as one of our widows. And so he says in, in verse three honor widows who are truly widow. So what does it mean to truly be a widow? It's this one in verse 4. She's truly a widow if she does not have family who can care for her. That's one of the first criteria. There's nobody else in her family who can care for her. She is first the responsibility of her family. Does she have children? Does she have grandchildren? Here is something I wanted to make sure that you heard me say because I'm going to need this one day and I just you're going to have to remind me. But whenever God said, honor your mother and father, that includes in their widowhood. That includes as they get older. Whenever they are moving through that transition in life, we still honor our mother and father. There is godliness in this honoring. It is a responsibility of the family first to care for widows. Look at verse 8. This is the one we don't like. I think it applies to widows, but I think it applies to all of family if anyone does not provide for his relatives, it didn't say widow, it just said relatives, for if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So there you go. I don't like that at all. Just going to tell you. But that's what God does. He puts those verses there where he says, hey, but you need this. Like congregational life, body life, authentic, genuine Christianity looks like this. Here's the other thing. She is truly a widow if she displays godliness through prayer and service. That's in verse 5 is where it begins that. She's truly a widow if she displays godliness and through prayer and service is what it kind of breaks down to. Look at verse 9. It really articulates that. She's truly a widow if she's... Um, I'm sorry. I, I've kind of brought it all together. Um, it, 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 shows us aspects of what that godliness in prayer looks like in verse 9. But verse 9, he just kind of sums it all up. He says, she's truly a widow if she is, here you go, she's mature in her age. She's not less than 60 years of age. Oh, Ricky, what if she's 58 and a half? Okay, like we can round up. I'm good. As long as, you know, like 55 and we can mathematically, I'm just joking. Like, I think the whole point is not 60, the whole point is, Mature enough to where she's likely not to be married again and someone else walk alongside. Like, I think that that's the thrust of it. So, we're not going to disqualify on 58 and a half, um, or 59 and three quarters, but that's that, that framework there. She's truly widowed. She's, I put, mature in her age, had a healthy marital life. It says right there in verse nine, she's having been the wife of one husband. Look at this next one. She's displayed godliness, she's having a reputation for good works. All right, so we should be caring for our widows. But Paul says, I want you to be careful to, to care for those who are truly widows. And then these other ones, I want you to be mindful and be very, very careful. Whenever he says, like, and as we move back through there, um, he talks about how you should not enroll them as a widow. It seems, we don't know a whole lot, but it seems like there was a, like a list within the church. And if somebody wanted to be a widow, then your name was like enrolled upon this list. And there was a particular like devotion to the church of service and things you were doing. So you were like enrolled. So whenever he says don't enroll someone, he's, it's like in a, it's this capacity of something that, to be quite honest, we don't really know. What I think it means for us is if we say within our church that we're going to care for a widow, like we've enrolled them into our care. OK, so he's saying, though, that we want to be very, very careful Um, which widows we enroll, especially younger ones, because he uses strong language. They could be drawn away from Christ, he says. He says later that, uh, and that really comes down to being drawn away from serving only Christ. He says that some have like basically pursued the devil. I mean, it's pretty harsh language for, for these young widows. But if you go back to that enrolling and enlisting idea, that whenever they were widows and they were young, they would say, hey, church, will you take care of me? And the church would like enroll them and bring them in. They were to be devoted to the church and they're doing good works within the church and they're serving the church. But then they look over, they're like, oh, well, here's another affection that I have, and I want to get remarried. And so then they begin to abandon their service and, and their devotion to the church. It's kind of that idea. So it says the church should not enroll them as widows because look, they will desire to marry again. Paul's not gonna like slam that. He goes on and he says, um, because in, in desiring to be married again, they will be provided for. And then he says they're going to learn to be idlers because the church is meeting their needs. So they don't have to serve the church or go be productive because the church is meeting their needs. And so then he says that they're going to be gossips and busybodies. And I, I just know Paul has to be looking there. I think Andy did a great job of kind of setting the context last week of in this situation, it's almost like Paul knows that there are some dynamics in the church that specifically have to be addressed. The widows aren't being cared for the right way. The elders, Timothy, they're not being cared for, so make sure these things are being done. Slaves and masters, what we're going to talk about here in a moment, that's not like it's a real situation that that he's looking into saying, you better guard these things because this matters. Paul's last words uh, regarding widows. Got two of them. I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. Their remarriage is not an evil or bad thing. He's just saying they, this part right here. That let the church not be burdened so that it can care for those who are truly widows. Let them get married again. That's wonderful. That's from God. Okay, last word on it all. If any believing woman, this is not for widows. It's, it's, I mean about the, It's about the widows, but it's not for the widows. But if any believing woman, so believing women in this room, Um, and in churches, has relatives who are widows. This is for us right now. Let her care for them. If there is a widow in the family, believing women are to care for them. It's what Scripture says. It's not what Ricky says. It's something that we are called to do, and it's for this reason. The very next verse, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. There must be active service for those in need. Y'all, God cares about widows. He also cares that the family first honors them and that believers genuinely follow through on this. I'm going to sum it all up in this way. A healthy congregation cares for its widows and encourages care for its widows. We must be doing that. What if we don't have widows in our church? Then when we do, we must care for them. Andy covered the congregation elders. That's verses 17 through 25. It basically comes down to this. A healthy congregation honors its leaders. I'm not going to rehash all that. Andy covered all that last week. Bond servants and, and masters says this, verses 1 and, and 2 of chapter 6, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And then he goes on a little bit further. Y'all, you know, It's estimated that in this Roman Empire, when Paul is writing to Timothy, that approximately half of that population... Were slaves, so as the slaves are hearing the gospel and being saved, and the masters, their masters are hearing the gospel and being saved. It's no doubt that they're coming in on a Sunday morning and they're in fellowship with one another, their fellow believers, and then on the very next day they got to return to work and oversight. And this is a very unique dynamic. And so Paul's writing into it. We do not live in a day whenever I would address someone as a bond servant or slave and a master. It made total sense then. The closest relationship we have is the employee and the employer because it will happen whenever the employee is in fellowship, like gathering with the employer, and they've got to live in this dynamic together. So Paul clarifies that the employee should always honor his employer with, quote, all honor. Okay, now, but watch this because it's going to point back to congregational life. So here's what it says. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, because they are brothers, rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So here's the temptation. The temptation is this. I'm a believer. My boss is a believer. Therefore... We can have grace with one another because we're both Christians. And so then we, the temptation is we begin to, we wouldn't say, but we begin to take advantage of that brotherhood and that fellowship in the faith. We'll work a little bit less. We won't put as much in there because we're going to presume upon that grace that's there. That's what he's saying. If you have a believing master, you must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Don't take advantage of the relationship and the renewal that we have in Christ. That unity must be guarded. Instead, we must, quote, serve all the better because they are believers. So it's just something we want to be mindful of, that in our unity of the faith, we cannot let that unity diminish our work ethic or our work relationship. In fact, it should heighten it. You as an employee, as a believer, with a believing employer should work all the harder because they reap the benefits of our faith one to another rather than going, they'll be gracious with me. They got to. They're loving. They have to be loving. If not, then it's their sin, right? We cannot presume upon that. But employer, employee, that's the closest we have, but it's not really exact parallel because the conditions that they might step into on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday might be much harsher than what you and I step into. And yet they were called to have unity and work all the harder. Therefore, you and I, we work all the harder. Because as people see us work, we work as unto the Lord. As people see us work, it is a way of us praising and honoring the Lord. Lord, you gave me this opportunity. You gave me this position. You gave me this situation. I am going to work and glorify you in this moment. And if it's a believing bus, I'm going to work all the harder because I want them to see how much I love you and love them as our unity in the faith. That's the thrust of all of that right there. So that all comes back to a healthy congregation, honors, relationships, and one another. All right, so that's like that whole passage really condensed. He talked a whole lot about widows. He threw this in one generation to the other. But now I want us to, I want us to just see like... It's all throughout the New Testament. So we're going to go all the way back to Romans because how we gather, y'all, is not just about healthy leadership. It's about healthy body life. If we have, let's just say that we have the right doctrine, the right leadership, the right conduct, the right fellowship, and the wrong body life, then we will be unhealthy still. God tells us all throughout His Word what He wants us to look like one towards another. I will go so long, and then at a certain point, I'm just going to say, if you want the rest of the verses, I'll send them to you. But we're going to start in Romans. And there are many passages that tell us how we should be one towards another. All right, so we're going to be in Romans, and then we're going to just keep flipping to the right. Give me one second here. If y'all get cold, sorry, I am sweating so bad up here, so y'all just bear with me. Romans, and I'm going to move quickly, and I'm not going to offer commentary on all these, like, because I think that they pretty much speak for themselves. Romans 12, verses 9 through 12. Paul, writing to believers, in this magnus opus of doctrine and theology that he's given us, he, he starts boiling it down. He says, Romans 12, 9 through 12, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Look at this love one another with brotherly affection. And I love this next one outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. We can break down each one of those into things that we should be holding to personally, but things that we should all be doing, especially to one another. The ones that stick out most to me are love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, and contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Like, that's what body life comes down to. We're all doing this, right? We've got to be doing this. Look at verses 15 through 16 of Romans chapter 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We like that one. Now look at the next verse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. All of that together. We're good with rejoicing with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony. Ah, it's a... I've tried. It's not on me. No, you live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sights. Live in harmony with one another. Romans chapter 14. This is a longer one. Really wish that Andy were in here for this one. Romans 14, verses 1 through 13. Just think that this is good for Andy because it talks about vegetables. As... For the one who is weak in faith, it says. Doesn't mean that they don't have faith. They're a believer. It just means that they're weak in it. Sometimes, though, we tend to think that we're the strong one when really, in fact, I am very likely the weak one. As for the one who is weak in faith, though, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Go down to verse 10. Verse 10. And look at this as Paul just really presses in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. It's our obligation to one another. It's what we got to do. This is what we're called to do. Romans 15:1. We who are strong have an obligation. That's an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I need that one in front of me every single day. I do. Maybe you're not me because you're all like, really? Okay. But have you not ever just had like a brother who failed and you're sitting there going, really? Really? I'm done. Like I'm, we don't get to do that. We don't get to check out on family. We don't get to neglect a brother. We must care. We who are strong have an obligation from our God in heaven to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us, let each of us first to, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Romans fifteen five through seven. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Y'all listen to this. This is wonderful. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's weak. He's strong. I'm weak. He's strong. I'm strong. He's weak. Doesn't matter. Live in harmony. Serve. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's what we're called to do. Go to 1 Corinthians. This is the longest passage that we're going to read, but I want you to hear that this is something from God and from, from God and not man. This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is what the body should actually begin to look like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 14 through 21 Paul writes for the body does not consist of one member but of many if the foot so as we gather we're all the body that's the picture if the foot should say because I'm not a hand I don't belong to the body that wouldn't make it that would not make it any less part of the body More presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body of His church, is what I am added of His church, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, He keeps going, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak, he says, in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. I want to stop right there. We preach that a lot at weddings. You know what the context is? Not for weddings and not for marriage, but for the body. That's why I want want you to hear all this coming together, like this full context. Between you and I, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not, in the body, insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. In the body, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I love it in a wedding. I mean, it's nice, but it's really for us. That's how you and I are to love, because we are one body. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes to him, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at this. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Sadly, that is a reality in churches. They bite, they devour. There is no love May we not ever be that. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. A little bit further. Brothers, this is where... Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 2, but bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ... Let's get down to verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. This is what we're called to do good to one another. I'm tired. I know. Do good. I'm weary. I know. Do good. This is what we've been called to. We've been given the freedom to serve and love one another. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. I love this one. This is so good. Ephesians 2, verses 18 through 22. There's like a great perspective setting. For through him... Sorry, I still heard pages, so wait. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. For through him, Jesus Christ, that's, that's the hymn. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens you are family and co-heirs with Christ. You have been brought together. You are no longer aliens and strangers to one another. When we gather, it is a family reunion of us coming to one another. It's just what are we going to do in that family that God has built? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, And this is what that means. What's this manner worthy of the calling? Look at verse 2. "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace." As we move through body life, you'll begin to realize that yes, though you as an individual matter and that Christ has redeemed you, it's not all about you. It's about us coming together in our encouragement and unity of the faith that so reflects the love of Christ for all people. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32 Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. I love this as God in Christ forgave you. Do not think that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Do not ever think that they would never make their way into the church. What God has brought together, Satan will seek to destroy. That's why you and I, along with all believers, whenever we're together and whenever we think of them, we must be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. Why? Because Christ forgave us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2-4. through four. Paul writes and he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full and of one mind. Right. So everybody be together. And then look at verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I do have a passage in Colossians. You can write it down, but we're, we're going to turn to some others. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to read you verse 16 of it while you write it down. Um, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Like, we're to be encouraging one another, doing these things. So... I'm not going to make it weird. I'm not going to call and sing to you over the phone a song or spiritual song. But it's that idea that whenever you come together, that there is freedom to express ourselves in these ways. But it means that we come together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Body life. What does this look like? What does healthy congregational life look like? 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now look at this: be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. In other words, step into their life and get them going. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. I, I'm just going to do verse 14 again, but I want you to remember those last five words. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You can write down 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Like that's what what 2 Thessalonians said. Like if there's someone, they don't agree with the right doctrine. It said don't regard them as an enemy yet, but you need to warn them as a brother. We have to encourage, we have to warn, we have to admonish one another because you and I are going to be wrong. It is loving to step into the wrongness to get them back on the right track. Just got to know that. I'm going to read a familiar passage to you and then I'm going to give you the references for the others and then we're going to finish. I actually have two more passages but Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. What does healthy congregational look like in a biblical through a biblical lens? Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Paul tells Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he lays it out. Older men are to be sober-minded. What what qualifies as an older man? I ain't going there. Okay, so that one's on you. Y'all work that out. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, verse 3, Likewise, I'm definitely not going there. Okay, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not just reverent, but reverent in their behavior. Not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us." So that was one for Titus. I'm sorry. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Like that last phrase may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, really kind of encapsulates everything up there. The way that older men live, the way that older women live, the way that younger men live, the way that Titus preaches, the way that bondservants and masters together, all of this adorns the doctrine of Christ. All of it is the putting on of Christ so that others can see the glory of Him in our lives. Like That's the light shining through us. I do have so many more verses, but I'm going to... I'm going to honor what God did put on my heart, and it was watch your time. Write down Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. It says, Consider how we stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Write down James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16 confess your sins to one another pray for one another so that you may be healed write down James chapter 5 verses 19 through 20 so if any one of us wanders from the truth and someone brings him back know that you brought that sinner back from wandering and you've saved his soul from death the one i want you to all turn to as we close is first john chapter 3 verses 17 through 18 For us in our congregational body life. But if anyone, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the prayer, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and everyone had all things in common. Because if anyone had the world's goods and saw his brother in need, they gave it. I love that last one. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So, cross off, how are we doing? Like as a congregation, like how are we doing? But but more specifically, how are you doing? Because God has clearly told us that there is an obligation upon us. When we put all of this together, then we, we realize that the, the church that Christ has established should be a unique place of deep love and quick forgiveness, selfless sacrifice, high honor, grace and mercy, and all of that is riddled and muddied with real life alongside one another. It gets messy. It gets hard. But this is what we're called to do. It is for you and the neighbor sitting alongside you and those who couldn't gather this morning It's for you and your neighbor that Christ came and died, not for us simply. And whenever he died and we believed in him, then he brought us all together into one body, and he says, my body must be healthy to therefore honor who I am and my sacrifice so that God may be glorified. This is what we've been called to, that we may with one another grow closer to him so that he receives higher praise throughout the rest of our life and all of eternity. It's just a matter of will we do it or will we not. It all comes down to obedience. Let's pray. Lord, for all the words spoken today, may we leave here with this, that you, Jesus Christ, you came and you made us your own, and in making us your own, we are no longer our own, which means we no longer get to live for ourselves. I do pray that as we reflect on the sermon, Lord, we see that in all the words, Lord, there was a depth of Scripture over and over and over again. Your word reminding us of who we are to be in light of the gospel so that you may be glorified. We are reminded all throughout Scripture that we only who we are because you came for us and redeemed us. Lord, therefore, may we not live for ourselves, but for you. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth through us as you would have it in heaven. Lord, may we be obedient. Give us the strength to walk in these things because they're not easy. And Satan would love to destroy that. We love you and we pray on your son's holy name. Amen.